0: Today, Matthew chapter 24 is uh, where uh, we are. We've been uh, working uh, through the book of Matthew. And we will be for uh, another few weeks before we get into our fall series here. And um, we've been talking about trouble and uh, tribulation. Now the setting of this chapter, Jesus is just a couple days away from his crucifixion. Uh, Jesus is crucified on Friday... We are on the close of the Wednesday. Jesus had just told uh, his disciples that the temple and Jerusalem would be destroyed. And this would have been uh, just mind-blowing news. I mean, it would be like someone saying, you know, the city of Vancouver is going to explode and it's going to be gone. I mean, we'd be like, what? How is that even possible, Right. This is basically what, what Jesus said, that the temple, as they knew it, which was truly one of the wonders of the world, uh, a building project that took about 80 years to finish, uh, immensely beautiful, filled with gold inside and out. And as we talked about last week, after it was destroyed, that's how the Romans took all the golden stuff out, how paid for the Roman Colosseum uh, to build it in Rome. And so Jesus tells them that their temple is going to be destroyed. And of course, as we talked about last week, this is what did happen in 70 AD. The Jews began to revolt against the Romans and the Romans came in and basically destroyed all of the cities and towns in Israel and then landed on Jerusalem. And there was about a a five and a bit month siege. They finally broke in and the city was completely destroyed. Josephus mentions that 1.1 million Jews were killed, 100,000 taken into slavery. Many of those would be slaves who would end up building the Roman Colosseum. So absolutely, uh, totally devastating what, what had happened. So the disciples are shocked. I mean, how is this possible? I mean, they actually thought the temple was, uh, that it w- would be impossible for it to be destroyed. I mean, it's kind of like the Titanic, right? Even God couldn't sink this thing. <laughs> That's what they, they thought about the temple. And so Jesus tells his disciples, this is going to be destroyed. And it's good to know that Jesus knows your future. He, he knew it was going to happen. He knows what's going to happen in your life tomorrow. Uh, he knows what's going to happen in your life a week from now. That's why it's good to be close to him the closer you are to Jesus the more you're going to hear his voice the more he's just going to help you in life and so the disciples after they hear this they wander up to the mount of olives and here's a picture of modern day Jerusalem from the mount of olives you have a, a beautiful view of the city and of the temple and And Jesus sits down with his disciples and the disciples start asking him some questions about the destruction. And this is why Matthew chapter 24 is called the the Olivet Discourse because Jesus spoke this on the Mount of Olives. And as we looked at last week, it says the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Because in the disciples' mind, If the temple in Jerusalem were going to be destroyed, that had to be the end of the world, right? They would be like the same event at the same time. They didn't understand that there would actually be a large separation. And so basically they ask three questions. When will the temple be destroyed? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? And as we talked about, this passage is immensely complicated, because, for one reason, it doesn't really tell us when Jesus is answering one question or the other, and I mean, this hands down is the most difficult chapter in all of the book of Matthew, uh, and easily one of the more difficult chapters in the whole Bible, and it really wasn't a very fun sermon to prepare for, because I mean, it was like, there's just so many different opinions, and had all the, the best commentaries, all these different theologians that would read this guy, like, wow, that sounds great, and then this guy would disagree, and I mean... There's just a lot of debate over this passage. And if you ever meet anybody who says, oh, I got this all figured out, I know exactly what this says, uh, either they're very prideful or they're, they haven't read very widely. And so, usually when I preach, I like to have a lot of application and sort of, hey, here's going to help you today to take on the world kind of a thing, but man, it's just a struggle. And so, <laughs> you got to come back next week, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but we're gonna, we got to get through this as part of going through this, uh, this book. And so, I hope you're ready to get to work. Okay. So, uh, we looked at verses 4 through 14 last year, uh, last week, sorry. (laughs) It feels like last year. Uh, Jesus gives seven signs. So, they ask, when's the temple going to be destroyed? When are you coming back? What's the sign of the end, end of the age? Jesus says, well, here's seven signs. And, of course, the question is, seven signs for what? The destruction of the temple or your return? And... And people will say it's this, and some people will say it's that. So the seven signs were false prophets and false messiahs, wars between nations and kingdoms, famines and earthquakes, persecution, uh, many will turn from the faith, love for God uh, or love for one another will grow cold, and the gospel will be preached in the whole world. And then he says, then the end will come. And so some will say the end of Jerusalem will come. And we, as we saw last week, these can easily all be fulfilled before 70 AD, all those things did indeed happen. Others will say the end will come and they will say that all of these things really haven't happened yet. We sort of see them a little bit, but all these things are, are going to really happen in the great tribulation that's going to happen seven years before Jesus returns. And then others, and I'm in this category, uh, feel that these were signs that led up to 70 A.D., but they're also signs that will cover all of church history. And that when we see these things happen, we shouldn't freak out, right? When there's a war, an earthquake, or there's famine going on, we shouldn't be like, ah, it's the end of the world! Because Jesus says these things are just going to be a part of of history, a part of our Christian walk. And then the end will come... uh, after these things and so with that we start in to a very challenging text on verse 15 and so here we go he says so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken through the prophet daniel let the reader understand that's those who are reading daniel then let those who are in judea flee to the mountains Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. So, Jesus says, essentially, something really bad is going to happen, right? That when you see the abomination that causes desolation, they are to run for their lives. That's what he's saying. Now, did this happen, or is this still future? That's up for debate. There are some who will say all of this hasn't happened yet, that this is something in the future That there will be an abomination that causes desolation set up in the holy place. Now, we know the temple was destroyed, right? So some people say that the temple in Jerusalem will actually be rebuilt at some time in the future. And then some antichrist figure is going to cause some sort of abomination that causes desolation. And then all the people in Israel, modern-day Israel, are going to run away and get away. And they put this all in the future. Now, in my opinion, this is problematic for a number of reasons, but one of them is that this passage so clearly fits what happened in 70 AD that it is really awkward to say this hasn't happened yet and this is going to happen in the future. Uh, So that interpretation to me is problematic. One that has more credibility is some people say, yes, this did happen in 70 AD, but it's also a picture of what's going to happen again. So they will say it kind of has a dual fulfillment. And then others, and I'm kind of in this category, feel that this uh, relates to 70 AD, and and that's kind of it, that this happened in 70 AD. So let's kind of break this down a little bit. So he says, When you see standing in the holy place, now the holy place is uh, in the temple building itself, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So whatever this abomination causes desolation, those in Judea are to run away to the mountains, not to another city, because usually if your city was going to be attacked, you would go to another city. But Jesus specifically says, go to the mountains. And here's the thing. Did you know, like Eusebius, the church historian, said that when the Romans approached Jerusalem, came on Jerusalem, that the Christians who had this text in their hands, listen to it. And in 67 AD, they ran from the city all the way to a place called Pellet. They didn't run to another city because, in fact, the Romans actually came in and destroyed all of the cities. They ran into the mountains, and because of this very text, uh, many Christians' lives were saved. So Jesus predicts this. It's perfectly fulfilled. They run for their lives, and they're saved. Now, what was the abomination that causes desolation? Well, um, The prophet Daniel mentions this a a few times. Uh, In Daniel 11, specifically, the fulfillment actually was before this. In 168 BC, a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes came into Jerusalem. He slaughtered 40,000 Jews. He sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple, which was an unclean animal. Then he took the pig broth. And he sprinkled it all around the temple, making it unholy. And then he outlined any Jewish practice. So if you, like, read Isaiah or got circumcised or any of those things, you would be, you would be killed by the death sentence. And specifically, Daniel chapter 11 says this was fulfilled in uh, 168 B.C. under Antiochus Epiphany. And later the Maccabees came in and got all the mountain, that's where our festival of Hanukkah comes from when the temple was rededicated after it was um, um, desolated by Antiochus now Daniel mentions the abomination of desolation in other places and Jesus picks up this and says in his day 38 he says this is still future so it was going to happen again and so what did those Christians who are reading this text see as the abomination of desolation that caused them to run Well, we don't know for sure. Some think it was when the Jewish zealots were fighting each other. They actually ended up killing people right in the temple, shedding blood, committing murder. That may have been the abomination of desolation. That's one way to desecrate the temple. Others think it's when the Romans came upon the city. In fact, Luke, Luke's version of this, same story, would be the same message Jesus is giving, Luke says, Jesus says this, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation, same word, is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And so when you see the armies beginning to surround Jerusalem, that's when you need to leave. And that's what the Christians did, and their lives are spared. So then it goes on, uh, let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house, And in those days, they had little flat roofs, and you could run down the stairs, and you could run into the wilderness without actually going inside the house. And let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers, because in those days, they didn't have cars or helicopters or planes. It's one of the reasons why this is best to keep this in 70 AD, because if this happens in the future, there are planes and helicopters and cars, which is not as bad for pregnant women or nursing, nursing mothers. And then he says, pray your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. The winter, they don't really ever get snow there, but they get mud and other issues like the Sabbath, the city gates would be closed, or they couldn't buy supplies. There are rules about you can only travel one mile, and you couldn't go any further than that, so it would complicate things. And so Jesus is saying, pray this won't happen on the Sabbath, which is interesting because it means that, that, that maybe their prayers could change when it would happen. I mean, the book of James says you don't have because you don't ask. In fact, Peter says, pray for the return of Jesus because you might actually speed his coming. I mean, your prayers are so powerful. I mean, one of the most underestimated things that we do as Christians is is prayer. For some reason we think, I can accomplish more if I just work hard, if I can just do it, if I just get my life together. Prayer accomplishes so much. Do not go long throughout the day without lifting up your heart to God in prayer. Pray for what you're struggling with. Pray for those around you. Prayer is powerful, powerful enough to even change when a huge event like this takes place. And verse 21. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now And never to be equaled again. And those who say this is still future really hone in on this verse. And and they'll say, look, Jesus said this will be so bad it would never be equaled again. And then they would say, well, we look at Hitler. He killed six million Jews. And only a million were killed in the destruction of Jerusalem. Or Stalin, who killed an estimated 20 million people. That was more. So obviously, this couldn't have been in the past because Jesus said it would never be equaled again. And these guys killed more people. And so those who respond will say, yeah, it's true, more people were killed in uh, other times, but never in history was a city so decimated of its population that, again, 1.1 million Jews killed, the other 100,000 taken to slavery, completely decimated. That doesn't really happen in history. But more likely, this phrase Unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again is simply a hyperbolic phrase that, in fact, if you study your Old Testament, is used often in the Old Testament to basically mean this is something crazy that's going to happen. And here's just a couple of texts. For example, Ezekiel, and says, because of all of your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done and the like of which I will never do again. Or Exodus 11, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and so such as shall never be again. And there's actually quite a few other texts where this phraseology is used, that it's never happened before and will never happen again, even though it has happened before and will happen again. It just means, this is something crazy. I mean, we say things like that. You have a bad day at work, that was the worst day of my life. Well... Really? Well, maybe not, but just was a horrible day. Or, you know, it, was, it felt like the world was going to end today. It was such a bad day. Oh, well, really? No. We, we, we use those phrases to kind of exaggerate things. And according to the Old, old Testament, that's how this phrase was used in the Old Testament. All right. <clears throat> Still live out there? <laughs> okay. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive... But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Now, those who put this in 70 AD would say that the siege only took a little more than five months. And it was shortened. It could have taken a lot longer, but because it was shortened, at least some people who were taken to slavery survived. And for the sake of the Jewish people, they would say the elect here are the Israelites, or the Jewish people, the siege was shortened. A lot of people put a a break here and say, in those days is going back to verse 14, to 4 to 14, that is in the days of all of church history, of trouble, tribulation, famine, persecution, that those days will be shortened, and you know one day Jesus is actually going to come back for our sake. Others will say, this really hasn't happened yet, this is still future, that in the great tribulation, Jesus is going to shorten the great tribulation for the sake of the elect in those days. And so, different opinions on that. <clears throat> and at that time, if anyone says to you, now, at what time? Again, some will say, that's the 70 AD. Some will say, this is future. Some will say, this is kind of all I'm world. And this is, this is talking about sort of all of, of church history here. And so we got to watch out for this warning today. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect, and the elect is talking about Christians, that's how it's most often used in the New Testament. See, I have told you ahead of time. So, the warning is if someone comes to you and says, Hey, Jesus returned and I know where he is, come with me, he's in the closet, right? The storeroom, right? Or uh, wherever it is, or I know where he's out in the desert. Don't, don't believe it, right? Uh, four false messiahs and false prophets have come. And they'll perform great signs and wonders. In the Bible, there's bad signs and wonders. And there's lots of good signs and wonders. And so some people, whenever they hear signs and wonders, just go, ah, signs and wonders, all bad. He's like, no, there's really good signs and wonders in the Bible. And there's bad signs. There's one's from God and one's from the enemy. And so you need to discern. And so even before 70, AD, it's interesting, Josephus mentions false prophets, false messiahs, and signs and wonders that were taking place. For instance, Josephus mentions that some guy parted the Jordan River. Another guy found some relics hidden by Moses, supposedly. And these other signs and wonders were taking place. So it could be this happened before uh, 70 AD. So he says, so if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. That would be like the inner room of the temple, a storage room again if someone says, Hey, Jesus came back and he's in the closet. Or Jesus came back and he's out at the lurches, you know, out in the desert or wherever, right? Don't believe it, okay? Why shouldn't you believe it? Because of this reason. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Which is really kind of a strange text here. But he's saying someone says, hey, Jesus came back and I know where he is, come with me, he's over here, Jesus says, don't believe it because as lightning appears, you can see it as far as the east is the west, everybody sees it. Jesus is not coming back secretly and going to go hide in Nelson or in, you know, hide out in Jerusalem and no one's going to know. When he comes back, everyone will know, Right? And then he says, where there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Meaning, could be a couple things. That is, vultures don't miss a carcass. We won't miss the return of Jesus. Or if you see a flock of, I don't know if they call them a flock of vultures, but a pack of vultures, you know that there's a carcass there, Right? Again, we are not going to miss the return of Jesus. He's not going to return secretly when people don't know. It's going to be very, very visible. So if someone says, hey, I found Jesus. He's over here. Don't believe it. And then verse 29, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then, so these things appear before this then, will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the people of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And so after the distress of those days, uh, probably meaning the church history, some people would say that's the great tribulation. And then he says the sun will be darkened. And so it's going to be dark. The moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and heavenly bodies will be shaken. Some people take this very literally and think that there's going to be some dramatic earthquakes and, you know, you know like a polar axis shift where the stars seem like they're falling from the skies or that kinds of thing. It could be that this is, is somewhat literal because we know in 2 Peter it says, before the return of Jesus, it says this, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. When the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so the Bible talks about that when Jesus returns that, that after that, the, the heavens and the earth will be destroyed. He's gonna create a new heavens and a new earth. And so it's possible that this is talking about uh, the destruction of the earth and the heavens. So there's a new heavens and a new earth. But more likely, again, if you actually study your Old Testament, this is basically phraseology that, that means something earth-shattering. And again, this kind of idea is used often in the Old Testament. For instance, when God was warning of the destruction of Edom, he says this, And all the host of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. Or at the destruction of Babylon. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. So very similar. There's a lot of other passages in the Old Testament that have the similar idea. And basically it just means something earth-shattering. Like we say, this is earth-shattering news. Like this is something incredible. So it might be talking about the destruction of the heavens and the earth, so the new heavens and the new earth. It might be just a hyperbolic language for something earth-shattering that happens before the return of Jesus. And then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Uh, What is the sign? Some people think there's going to be like some kind of weird banner, hey, Jesus is coming, which seems silly to me. Uh, Other people think that the sign of the Son of Man is Jesus himself, that that's the sign of his coming. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn. Some people think they are mourning in repentance, because they finally realize that, whoa, Jesus is who he says he is. Other people think they're, they're mourning because they had their chance to become a part of the kingdom that God is coming to create, and they have rejected Jesus, and all of a sudden they realize that all of their thoughts and hearts and motives and deeds and actions are going to be revealed, that nothing has been hidden, and their sin has not been covered by Jesus, and they're going to be exposed and have to deal with it before God, and, and they're mourning. And you don't want to be one of those people. Because, I mean, as it goes on to talk about next week, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. And you don't, you don't want to have Jesus come back and realize that, that you haven't been forgiven, that you haven't, haven't gotten right with God. And if you are not right with God, man, you need to get right with God today. It's a good day today. And then verse 31. And he will send his angels... With a loud trumpet call. So this is not a secret coming. This is a says, Loud! Everyone's gonna know Jesus is coming back. And they will gather his elect. That's those people who love Jesus and are part of his kingdom from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. So no one's gonna be lost. Doesn't matter if you're hiding in a little cave and you're a little baby who's a Christian somewhere, he's gonna find you if you know Jesus. And when he returns, he's going to gather all those he loves and all those who have been forgiven. I mean, it's forgiven people that become a part of his kingdom. And they will be gathered. No one will be missed. And now he says, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door i tell you this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened so jesus is talking to his disciple and says this generation will not pass by until all these things are happened now uh there is debate over this because there's debate over all these things have happened so those who say this is all still future future will say that this hasn't happened yet, and therefore this is some sort of future generation. But every time the idea of a generation is used in the New Testament, it is always of the current generation. And these disciples would indeed see all of these things, except for the return of Christ. They would see all of those things happen. Wars, famines, persecutions, false prophets, false signs and wonders. They would see the destruction of Jerusalem. That would all happen in their lives lifetime. And then finally, right? (laughs) Uh, heaven and earth will pass away. Again, uh, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, but my words will never pass away. I mean, these words will not pass away. There's a lot of things in this world that pass away. There's a lot of things in this life that we can't trust. There's a lot of things in this life that fail us. Even those who are most precious to us, like our spouse or our good friends or our church, I mean, sometimes will fail you. But there's one thing that will never fail you, and that is the word of God. And that is Jesus who who breathed these words. And if you find yourself going through turmoil, you find yourself like, I don't know who I can trust and no one's able to help me in this situation, and you just kind of feel out of control, you just got to open up this book and begin to read. And you can trust the words of this book and you can trust the work of Jesus because he is amazing. And we want to finish our service, uh, service by coming to this table as we remember Jesus.